to worship you, spend time in your presence with your people um, and hearing from your word. And I just pray that as Joe comes up and talks to us um, about whether the Bible is reliable, Lord, um, would you help us to listen with our ears, Lord, but with our hearts as well? And would you just speak to us and would we listen? It's in the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. Amen. Saul Company, how we doing? Good, good, good. Amazing. Um, how many of you guys have registered for conference already? All right, that needs to be more people. Raise your hand if you're not registered yet. Lame, lame. Sign up. It's going to save you money, guys. It's going to save you money. Sign up. It's going to be great. Um, great. Well, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Joe Nealis. I'm the Salt Company Director here. Um, I get to lead this ministry together with my friends Callie and Luke. Shout out to Callie and Luke. Um, yeah, if, a lot of you guys don't know Luke. Luke is the uh, guy with the beautiful long hair who just led us in worship. So we're thankful to have him here. He's doing a great job. Um, but if you're new, I just want to say welcome. There's a lot of things you could be doing on a Thursday, uh, but I'm glad that you guys are here. If you're new to Salt Company, here's what Salt Company is all about. Um, we love to gather together here in this room, just like we're doing, and sing praises to King Jesus. And we're going to open up the Bible and see what God's word has to say to us. And so that's what we're all about here. We love to do that. It's our favorite thing we like to do. We meet in small groups throughout the week. Um, that's a highlight, but man, our favorite thing is to gather together and hear God's word preached. And so that's what we're going to do. If you guys have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, that's where we're going to be tonight. Um, and if you don't have a physical Bible with you, you can get your phone on, maybe Google it. Man, I just want you to be uh, reading God's word with us, Matthew chapter seven. And as you guys are flipping there, uh, question for you guys. You guys are um, kind of your second week into school. Raise your hand if you guys have papers this semester you have to write. Big papers you gotta write. Okay, great. Anybody already have to write a paper like due this past week? Dang, all right, I see, I see a few. Um, so when you guys are writing a paper, your professors generally want you to have sources, right? So hey, make sure to have three, four, five sources for your paper. And that's just to make sure that what you're saying isn't a bunch of nonsense, right? If you've got sources to back up what you're saying. Um, what's the website that your professors tell you to never go on? What is it? Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Great job, guys. Wikipedia. Why is that? Well, because anybody can edit it. Anybody can go in there, change some things. You're a crazy Aunt Karen. If, I, don't, I don't think you have to pay for it, but she has access, right? That's really scary and frightening, all right? So she can change Wikipedia. In fact... Um, one of the makers of Wikipedia, actually, he says this. He says, if you access the website, always be careful what you read. It might not be consistently accurate, okay? Uh, what do I mean? Here's an example. There are lots of examples, and guys, if you look this up, it's hilarious. But one of them is the Mall of Louisiana. Anybody been to Louisiana before? Anybody? I've never been either. Mall, Mall of Louisiana? No, no, ain't nobody been to the... That's why you have to Wikipedia it, because, you, you know. Well, so anyway, um, so one person is, is editing, you know, this uh, mall of Wikipedia thing. And I think that as they're writing it, I think they, they get a text or something and they think that they're replying back via text, but it gets copied into uh, this page. So let me read it. It starts off kind of normal and it says, um, the mall of Louisiana is currently one of Baton Rouge's two regional malls with the other two sh uh, shopping destinations being the older Cortana mall. And then it says, sorry, honey, I haven't left the house yet to check on the haircut place. And then it just keeps going. So uh, that's Wikipedia for you, right? So you can change it, you can edit it, right? That's why your professors say, don't go to Wikipedia for one of your sources because anybody can change it. It's been twisted, it's been changed, it's been revised. We can't really trust it, right? But what about the Bible? And ha isn't it kind of a well-known fact that what we have right now is vastly different than maybe what 
the, G, the, the Bible that Jesus knew the, or the Bible that the first followers of Jesus had. Isn't it kind of a well-known fact that the Bible's not, it's not trustworthy? Uh, tonight, we're gonna kick off a three-week series that we're doing called Confronting Christianity. And what we wanna do is we're just gonna answer three really difficult questions. There are tons and tons of questions in the world that you could ask about your faith. But what we wanna do is we wanna uh, talk through three difficult questions that maybe you've asked before or maybe that people have asked you before, and we wanna address those head on. Because here at Salt Company and at Keystone, we want to be a place where you can bring your questions, that it's okay for you to question your faith or to question Christianity. It's okay for your friends to do the same thing. And our desire is that we would be secure enough in our faith in Jesus that we're not scared of questions, but rather we welcome them in because that's what we see the God of the Bible doing. All throughout scripture, specifically when you see the Psalms or the book of Job, you see people kind of raising their fist at God and saying, why, why, why? And they've got questions. There's Thomas in the, in, in the, uh, in the gospels. He's famously known as Doubting Thomas. He's got questions. And so we want to be a place where you can bring questions, where you can have the hard questions about your faith addressed directly. And so that's our desire. Um, I think the thing, here's, Really quickly, let me just say, here's why this is such an important thing for us to talk about. So many young men and women, specifically when you're in college or college age, you begin to have your faith challenged. Maybe it's through life experience. Maybe, maybe you're here and you've had some pretty life-shattering things happen in your life recently. And it's began to cause you to question maybe the faith that you grew up having, right? Or maybe it's an intro to philosophy class or an intro to world religions. And now you're beginning to ask yourself the question, okay, but what about this Christianity thing, right? What? And you're asking a bunch of questions. And so sometimes out of a fear of being rejected, maybe this isn't your experience, but I know that it's the experience of many people, including myself. So what can end up happening is we have these, these questions and man, maybe, maybe you're a faithful follower of Jesus. Everybody sees you as a leader and man, you wouldn't wanna share that you have these questions. And so what happens is you just kind of, hold them to yourselves. You kind of deal with those questions in isolation. The only person who knows the questions you're asking is your YouTube search bar. Because that's the only place you can feel safe to ask those kinds of questions. And what can end up happening is as a result of these questions, maybe not answer, being answered or, or, or being brought to what should be the safest place in the world, the church, is it can leave many people disillusioned with their faith, eventually walking away from Jesus all together. I went to a Christian college, uh, got a Bible degree, and I've seen many, many people um, who would lift their hands during worship and, and, and seemed by all accounts to love Jesus and their faith fell apart when they left college. And so that's why we wanna do this series is we wanna say, hey, come bring your questions, right? We can't answer every question, but there are three we wanna address head on. And so our goal of this series is to engage your questions and to strengthen your faith. Does that sound good? I want to engage your questions and to strengthen your faith. And so tonight I want to kick off our series with a foundational question that we've already heard. It's a foundational question that could completely pull the rug from underneath your faith. In fact, um, it threatens even the validity of us coming here and opening up the Bible, right? Um, it's almost like, what's the point? If, if these questions must be wrestled with. And so the question is, can we really trust the Bible? Like I said earlier, man, isn't it a well-known fact that we don't really have the original, right? Isn't it just kind of like a corrupted version of what we had, 
right? Um, didn't it get lost in translation? I mean, there's so many different copies and don't we, do we have the original manuscripts and can we really trust this thing? And so that's the question I wanna look at tonight. And as we begin to answer that question, here's what I wanna do. Um, what I wanna do is I wanna see, I wanna show you guys that the Bible is not only trustworthy, but it's a rock that you can build your life on. Not only trustworthy, but it's a rock you can build your life on. So if you're not already there yet, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven. So before we start reading there, um, we're gonna hop towards the end of it. And uh, it's really important whenever you read scripture to be kind of aware of what's going on before so you can really better understand what's going on in the passage we're reading. And so here's what's happening. Matthew chapter five through seven, Jesus is preaching what is famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. What's Jesus doing here? Jesus is looking out to the crowd and saying, hey, listen, this is what it looks like. Uh, This is what your life could look like um, if you follow me. Here's what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And in it, he says some pretty countercultural things. Man, I invite you to study that whenever. But after preaching for several hours, he begins to conclude. And I know some of you guys are like, several hours, dang, snoozer, right? Jesus was a different kind of preacher, Verse 28 says that the people were astonished. They had never met somebody who could preach like this guy. So it's almost like watching your favorite movie, right? Three hours go by, right? It's like those Avatar movies. I've never seen it, but they're really long and people apparently love them, right? Maybe that's your favorite movie. And you're like, where'd the time go? Oh my goodness. So that's very similar. And so Jesus, he begins to wrap up his sermon and he essentially looks at the audience and he begins to say, okay, hey, listen. Uh, You've listened to me for quite a while. Now you got to make a decision. Where are we? It's almost like a, he looks at them and says, what are you gonna do with me? Are you all in with me or, or, or not? And so here's what he says. Look with me starting in verse 24, Matthew chapter seven. Jesus <clears throat> closes his sermon and he kind of ends with this illustration. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. So this is how Jesus begins. This is how Jesus concludes. And this is where we begin tonight. As we begin to answer that question, can we really trust the Bible? So if you're taking notes, the first point is this, the problem. Or number one, is this the problem? So as Jesus closes his sermon, he knows that he's ruffled some feathers. He's said some things that have offended a lot of people. And he's began to really challenge the thinking of many people at that time. Again, like verse 28 says that the people were astonished at his teaching. And now he calls his, his, his uh, audience to make a decision about him. And in his closing illustration, we just read, he kind of draws a line in the sand and he says, you have a choice of either trusting me or the loudest voices of the day. In other words, you can build your life on the solid foundation of my words or the solid foundation of the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the Jewish religious elite of their day. It's kind of who people went to for spiritual advice. These were the godly men that so many people looked up to. And so several times during Jesus' sermon, he calls out the Pharisees almost directly and he challenges them for teaching that being a child of God was dependent on how good you are, right? So on the outside, right, it doesn't matter about all the anger, hatred, and lust in your heart, uh, but if, as long as you kind of present, you know, a good face and you're good enough, that that's fine. And so Jesus says, hey, actually, that's a foundation 
that's gonna sink like sand. It's, it's not good, it's actually destructive, it's incorrect. Jesus says that following them is like building your house on the sand, it's unwise and it's going to ruin you. But he says that if you trust in his words instead, it's like building your house on a rock that can withstand the storms of life, safe, secure, immovable through the storms of life. You see, Jesus is saying, my words are trustworthy. God's word is trustworthy. Jesus is saying, hey, do you wanna know if the Bible is trustworthy? Try out my promises. I'm gonna be faithful. God's word is trustworthy. But is it? Isn't it a well-known fact that the Bible got lost in translation that we don't have the original message? You've heard these questions because I've said them a hundred times. Can we really trust the Bible? I mean, couldn't they just have edited it, right? Like they can just maybe add a few things in there that weren't originally there, right? Like kind of write in, yeah, hey, Jesus, he didn't actually rise, but we're gonna put that he rose from the dead or, or that an actual, a huge flood happened, right? Can we really trust the Bible or is it corrupted? Guys, um, about a year ago, uh, I was going to the chiropractor because I'm an old man. Uh, raise your hand if you are going to the chiropractor right now. Come on, you can just say it, right? Absolutely, let's go. It's good for your health, people. Okay, you should go, you should consider it. Um, and so anyway, I, I, I was going and uh, I knew that my chiropractor didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And so I'd been praying, like God, give me some level of gospel influence with her. And uh, so I began to ask her a little bit about her story. And so a question that I train our leaders to ask and um, that it's been really helpful for me to talk to kind of transition into spiritual conversation is I'll say, hey, do you have a faith? Uh, what's your faith background? Are you into church? Did you grow up doing that? Whatever. And uh, she begins to kind of say, well, that's a bit of a long story. And she goes ahead and tells me this journey that she had been on basically her whole life. She grew up Catholic, then converted to be a Mormon, left that, started going to a Baptist church, left that and became a Messianic Jew, okay? Maybe you're like, what the heck is a Messianic Jew? Well, now you're aware that that's a thing. And so, and then from there, she's like, well, now I'm an agnostic. And so, and I began to ask her a few more questions and I was like, hey, so how did you come to that conclusion? Like, how, man, you've been all over the place. Like, what do you, what do you think about Jesus, right? What, what do you, you know, what there? And she began to ask these questions about the Bible. She's like, well, listen, I don't really, like, she's like, I, we don't really actually have like the original manuscripts. Like, how can we trust that the Bible is true? And she was like, listen, didn't a bunch of like kind of powerful, like, Men decide a couple, like several hundred years ago, what books are gonna be in the Bible, what's gonna be out, and it's ultimately just for control and power. And so how can we really trust the Bible? And so those were genuine questions that she was wrestling through. So is it true? See, a lot is at stake here. And this is a question that many pose to Christians. And so my goal tonight, if this is a question you're asking, man, I hope um, that this is, uh, helps you trust that the Bible is trustworthy or if you're a believer, to train you on how to graciously and thoughtfully engage people who are asking these questions, not to attack them, but to thoughtfully help them think through this. So can we really trust the Bible? Point number two is a really creative title, okay? You guys ready? The evidence, right? I couldn't think of anything creative, so here we are, the evidence. So that's what we're gonna talk about. Um, so this is the fun part. We're gonna deal with some of the... the um, 
the most difficult arguments against the trustworthiness of scripture. Guys, it's, I, I don't wanna come up here and just be like, hey, here's some like little baby arguments. And then maybe somebody you meet in the future is like, hey, have you considered this? And you're like, oh my gosh, no. What we're gonna do is I just wanna look at, there's one guy in particular that maybe you should know. His name is Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, um, he uh, was a Christian for, uh, he, he, he professed faith in Jesus. As he went into college, he uh, began to study uh, the original text of the New Testament and of the Bible. And I think, he, I think his goal was, I think he eventually wanted to be a pastor. And as he studied it, um, he decided uh, to spend a lot of his life kind of disproving the Bible, that as he studied, he began to lose his faith. It's kind of an interesting thing, right? And so he becomes famous for writing this book called Misquoting Jesus. You can still buy it today. If you're interested in what he has to say, you can buy it and read it on your own. But his name is Bart Ehrman, wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. It's one of the kind of, when you think about um, anybody attacking the trustworthiness of scripture, this guy, this book, New York Times bestseller, he was all over all the interviews, all this. He is like the guy when you think of the Bible is not trustworthy. He's the guy, he's kind of the poster child of all of this. And so what I wanna do is I wanna look at his arguments and address those things head on. Can we really, really trust the Bible? And so before I continue, I wanna shout out two people, uh, Dr. Daniel B. Wallace, he is, uh, he wrote a book on this whole topic, really helpful. And then Ben Stewart, he's a pastor, really helpful. I uh, learned a lot from him. So um, don't wanna pretend that I'm some genius, but as we do this, guys, here's what I wanna do is we answer these, uh, these arguments. I wanna give you guys an acronym. Um, and the purpose of that is so that when you are maybe engaging with, with people about, man, can I trust the Bible? I want you to be able to say, hey, I got, I can easily recall this to you, Okay. Um, super creative. It's literally just this. You guys ready? Three letters, MBP, not MVP, MBP, okay? I was gonna try to do like a word, um, but it just didn't work out. So deal with it, okay? MBP, all right? So that's, that's the acronym I wanna give you guys. And before we kind of look more at the evidence, I kind of wanna set the scene for you. Uh, before the printing press, okay? I know you guys are like, this is exciting. The printing press, we're talking about it. Uh, before the printing press was created, um, how did uh, books go around, right? We didn't have these mass you know, printing machines. You can't, if you, write, if you read a blog post from somebody, you can't exactly share a link with someone. If, what you would do is you would make a copy of that so you can give that to another person. And there are people, their full-time job uh, was to copy these, like the original manuscripts. They would spend literally all day. That was their job, guys. They were called scribes, right? I know you're jealous. I'm sure you would love this job, but they would just copy and copy and copy and copy. And so now you got the original manuscript, one copy. Okay, now you've got two in existence. That's exciting, but more people need to hear this. So make a copy of that copy and so, and so on. You guys get the picture. But one of the problems that people will bring up, it's actually famously known that while there are only, I believe, 140,000 yeah, 140, words in the New Testament, there are 400,000 variants, in other words, differences between each manuscript. So each manuscript is different. Yikes. That means for every one word, there are about two and a half variants, kind of leaning on three. So every one word you see, there's three differences across the manuscripts. And that seems really intimidating, and I want to begin to talk about that. But here's kind of the surface level reason as to why we have that many differences. Because we have so many manuscripts, right? It turns out if you only have uh, one manuscript, you only have a small amount of, well, you don't have any differences. But when you have two, you have a small amount, and you get more and more and more. It just builds up. And so um, that's what I want to talk about. 
uh, the first letter, M, is for manuscript, okay? Um, we have more manuscripts of the New Testament than any other ancient work of literature, and it's not even close. We have more manuscripts of the New Testament, in other words, copies of the original. We have more manuscripts of the New Testament than any other ancient work of literature, and it's not even close. But before we see how many manuscripts we have, I wanna first look at um, the other pieces of ancient literature, right? So how does the New Testament, so the manuscripts that we have, how does that compare to kind of the more famous works from the ancient, uh, ancient Greece and ancient Rome? Uh, anybody have to take a history class in college? Anybody? Yeah, like three people, let's go. Wow, incredible. Uh, but in your history classes, there comes a point when you learn about ancient Rome or ancient Greece, and you can imagine kind of like those giant white pillars and the Colosseums and uh, the statues everywhere, right? But like most places, um, these ancient civilizations had people who would write, who would kind of capture what was going on, right? They were called, they were historians. They would keep track of the culture, the main events, and they would all write these things down. And it's from their writings, these historians, that we know anything about ancient Greece or ancient Rome, these historians, all right, so maybe uh, you hope to have kids in the future. I have some incredible names I'm gonna give you, so write these down. Um, these were some of the historians. These were the five main historians that we have in terms of knowing anything about ancient Greece or Rome. Here they are, Livy, Tacitus, Suetonius, Thucydides, and Herodotus. I think I said those right. Um, hope you wrote those all down because those are obviously very important. Um, but how many of their surviving manuscripts do we have? How many do we have, right? Everything that we know about ancient Greece, ancient Rome, the things that you've read about, learned about, seen on TV, everything that we could possibly ever know are based on these manuscripts. How many do we have? Livy has 27. Tacitus has three. And the earliest was written 800 years after his death. Suetonius, we've got one. Again, that's over 800 years after he died. Thucydides and Herodotus, same thing. We don't get anything until 800 years after their death. And even what we have are just these fragments, right? Almost like the size of like a credit card is what we have. And so altogether, the total amount of manuscripts that form the foundation of everything you and I know about ancient Greece or Rome total less than 400. And 400, man, that's, that's pretty good. But we have less than 400. But what about the New Testament? How does that stack up? Greek manuscripts alone, we have 5,600. On top of that, we need to consider that early on in the New Testament, excuse me, early, early on the New Testament was translated into several languages. Languages we obviously all know, like Latin, Coptic, Syriac, Georgian, Ethiopic, and Armenian, right? Um, but the total number of manuscripts, all together, we have approximately... 20,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. 20,000. One scholar called the New Testament, quote, by far the best attested work of Greek or Latin literature from the ancient world. By far the best attested work of Greek or Latin literature from the ancient world. So less than 400 manuscripts for everything that we know about ancient Greece or Rome and 20,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. So if you were to stack them up, literally stack them up, um, everything we know about ancient Greece or Rome, the manuscripts that we have, it would probably stack up to about the size of a five-story building, right? You can imagine that. Um, 
Anybody want to guess how tall? If we were to stack up all the manuscripts that we have in the New Testament, somebody just shout it. What do, how tall? The moon. the moon. That's a great answer. What do we got? Anything else? Guys, it would be a mile and a half tall, um, which would be the size of four and a half Empire State Buildings. Excuse me, I misspoke. A mile high, but four and a half Empire State Buildings. Five-story building versus four and a half Empire State Buildings. If everything we know about ancient Greece or ancient Romans founded significantly, is, is founded on significantly less manuscripts, how much more can we trust the New Testament manuscripts that we have? It is by far the best attested work of Greek or Latin literature from the ancient world. But what about all those dang variants, right? What about all those differences? 400,000, right? One difference for every, excuse me, three differences for every one word in the New Testament. Are we gonna talk about that? The second word, the second letter is, is B. And it just stands for beliefs. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a second. Beliefs. So 400,000 variants between these copies, two and a half differences for every word. And that's a serious problem, right? If these variants impact our beliefs. If it changes anything, right? You guys want to know what 70% of these differences are? Um, it's not forgetting a word or two. It's not adding a few things. It's differences in spelling. It's spelling differences, not spelling errors, spelling differences. So it's the difference between spelling uh, the name John, J-O-H-N, or J-O-H-N-N. Whoa, crazy, right? Spelling differences. That's 70% of the variance. That's marked as a difference. The second largest chunk of differences are alterations that can't even be translated into English. In other words, in the Greek language, it's, it's, it's a highly inflected language. In other words, word order doesn't matter, right? So in English, if I say Jesus loves Paul and Paul loves Jesus, those are two different sentences. Um, but in Greek, that could mean the same thing. So for instance, let's say a manuscript says, Jesus loves Paul, and another manuscript says, the Jesus loves Paul, or love Paul Jesus, or any number of variations. Though they're in different orders, the manuscripts all communicate the same thing. It's the nature of the language, because order doesn't necessarily matter. What matters is the last word, right? The last few letters of that word determines the order. And so you're going to see these manuscripts are like, whoa, this is arranged really different, but they're saying the same things. But there is one category of variant that does affect the meaning. It's about 0.5% of variants, but that's still something we should really consider, right? If it's going to impact meaning, uh, one of them is Revelation 13, 18. If you guys would flip over to Revelation, that's the last book of the Bible. Uh, Revelation 13, 18, you might even see a note there um, next to that verse. <clears throat> uh, but this is, this is one of the categories of variants that actually can affect meaning. It can impact it. Um, here's what my translation says. I trust yours is, uh, says the same thing. It, it says, Revelation 13, 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because, because it is the number of a person. It's number is 666. Uh, there are some manuscripts that say 616, 
right? Uh, and maybe you might even have a note. There might be a little letter next to uh, that verse. And if you look on the bottom of your Bible, there might be, you just find that letter and you might find under there, under there 616. Because a lot of manuscripts actually say 616, okay? But does this affect the meaning? Does this change any core Christian belief? No, not one bit. So Bart Ehrman, the guy I was talking about earlier, in the appendix of his book, so towards the end of the paperback edition of Misquoting Jesus, there's a Q&A section. And he answers one of the questions and here's what he says. <clears throat> Making tons of money based off of trying to get people to not trust the Bible. Here's what he says. Quote, the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. I'll read that again. The essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. So when you write a book called Misquoting Jesus, and it's a well-known fact that there are 400,000 differences, right? Um, it can sound like that's a huge, huge threat to the trustworthiness of scripture. But here is somebody who is saying, hey, listen, don't trust the Bible. But then he says that nothing brother or sister in the room, if you're a follower of Jesus, nothing that you believe is threatened by any of these variants. See, B is belief because none of your beliefs are impacted by the variants. None of your beliefs are impacted by these differences. The Bible is trustworthy. It's a rock that you can build your life on. But what about the Old Testament, right? Uh, We've been talking a lot about the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Is that trustworthy? Do we have the original? Uh, the third letter is P, it's prophet. Again, I'll explain what that is in a minute. Prophet. So M, B, P, manuscript, beliefs, and then P, prophet. Uh, so for years, the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament that we had were from AD 900. In other words, 900 years, almost a thousand years after Jesus's life. It's pretty significant. It's called the Mesoretic text, not to geek out on you, but that's um, what your Old Testament is largely translated from is the Mesoretic text, super reliable passage, excuse me, super reliable manuscripts, the Mesoretic text. So 900 years after the life of Jesus, but then something happened. Uh, there's a young, he was a young shepherd boy in 1947, I believe. And he was uh, picking up rocks, throwing them into caves, and uh, he picks up one rock and throws it. And then he hears what sounds like a vase shattering. And so he's a little nervous that he just ruined something. So he kind of cowers up into the cave and he checks it out. And in this cave, there are just tons of these like old, just ancient looking like clay pots. And he looks at the one that he broke and in it is just this really tightly rolled scroll. I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. And uh, long story short, uh, a bunch of scholars catch wind of this and they begin to study one of these scrolls, what turns out to be the prophet Isaiah, one of the largest books in the Old Testament. And so in February of 1948, so uh, about a year later, um, the scholars sent it to a man named William Albright. I 
I didn't know who he was until a couple of days ago, but here's who William Albright was. He was a scholar from Johns Hopkins University and he was the leading paleographer in the world. In other words, a, pa- a paleographer is somebody who would look at these manuscripts and then just date them. That was his job, right? He loved to do it. That's what he did. He was the leading guy for this. And so they find this scroll. They're like, who should we send it to? William Albright. They send it to him. And here's what Albright responds with. My heartiest congratulations on the greatest manuscript discovery of modern times. The dates should not be later than the ascension of Herod the Great. I should prefer a time around 100 BC. This is what known, it's what's known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe you've heard about it before, but this is what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. See, that's a thousand years earlier than the oldest manuscripts that we had, right? AD, AD 900, Versus 100 BC, that's a thousand year difference. And so now we get to see how much this message has changed over time, right? A thousand years, right? This game of telephone that's happened for so long, right? This has got to, this had to have been changed, right? A thousand years. And so as they study it, they find that there are 17 differences, 17 differences between um, Masoretic text versus what they just found but it's nothing, again, it's nothing that impacts meaning. The message is still there. You see, P is prophet because the prophet Isaiah's book was preserved through centuries. And what did it say? Why would it be saved this way? A thousand years and nothing has changed. Yeah, there might be a couple spelling differences here and there, but a thousand years of playing telephone and nothing has changed. Why? It's so that we could read a passage like Isaiah 53. If you want to flip there, you can, but I'm just going to read it. Isaiah 53, verses three to five says this. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he, he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, so we are healed by his wounds. Why was it preserved like that for so long? God moved history to preserve these passages so that you would know him. That you would know this very message that Jesus is inviting you to build your life on. As we begin to close, I wanna look back at Matthew 7. The last point is this, a firm foundation. Firm foundation. Matthew chapter seven, again, looking at those same verses. Why would this be preserved for so long? Because God, he wants you to know the truth that you can build your life on. Um, I know this is not true necessarily for everybody, but I, I feel like a pretty common theme is um, sometimes people can uh, maybe be hesitant to place their faith in Jesus because um, they feel like they need to get it all together. Being a Christian, man, that's hard work, man. I have to get my act together. I have to you know, go to church and I have to stop doing this and stop doing that. I mean, I really need to get my act together, right? Um, I just need to be good enough. Um, but this is exactly what the Pharisees taught. Remember that sand, right? Building your, rock, building your house on the sand. That's, that's what Jesus is talking about, the, what the Pharisees were teaching, right? 
that they were saying, hey, come build your life on, on the shifting sands of your works, your goodness. But Jesus, he offers a better foundation to build your life on, the foundation of what he did on the cross, the message of Isaiah 53, that God came down in the flesh to save humanity by living the perfect life that you and I could never live, to die in your place, to rise again, so that you could know the very God who preserved these passages, that you could know him. He says, come, let me be the rock of your salvation. Maybe you're here and you've already placed your faith in him. He's he's the rock of your salvation, but man, you're going through a storm. And maybe what you need to hear right now is that Jesus' words are a solid foundation that can secure you during the violent storms of your life. Guys, listen again to God's word in Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse. Why? Because its foundation was on the rock. You see, Jesus is the foundation of your salvation, yes, but he's also a foundation for when life gets hard, when the storms of life whip against you with the violence of wind and waves. He says, take me at my word in the storm. It's not gonna crush you. Notice how Jesus doesn't say, hey, trust me, and I'm gonna keep you from storms. He says, trust me in The storm, why? Because he is trustworthy. See, the Bible containing all the promises of God is your hope for a rock, a foundation that you can stand secure on when the storms of life happen. You see, I know this because Jesus says it, but I know it because it's been my experience. And so as we close, I wanna end with a story and then we're gonna pray and we're gonna worship together. But um, this was my Bible, uh, my freshman year of college. Um, It was the first Bible I ever bought myself. and uh, my relationship to scripture at that time was, you know, I, kinda, I grew up in the church um, and uh, man, I was growing in my faith. I'm like, man, I need myself a Bible that I can actually understand. So I got myself an NLT, right? I didn't understand the ESV. Uh, so I got the NLT shout out. Um, but anyway, I got a copy of the Bible and uh, uh, heading into my freshman year of, of college. And so I go to college and uh, I leave everything I know. I lived in Michigan, went to school in Ohio. And um, I think if any of you guys have gone through big changes in your life, um, being in a new location with new people, uh, what that can often do is it can kind of begin to show you um, things that you maybe had buried in, inside. For me, here's what it showed me. Um, being in a new place began to show me how anxious I was. I didn't realize how much anxiety I had, but man, I was, I was incredibly anxious to the point where there was, um, in the cafeteria, there would be times, I, it would be so difficult for me to even carry, my, carry my, my, my lunch or my meal and walk through the cafeteria and I literally felt like I was gonna pass out. I had no idea. I was like, man, I don't know what this, what the heck is going on, right? Like, I'm not in danger. I'm just, I'm just anxious. And I had never felt these things before. And um, I didn't really feel like I was clicking with anybody. I went to, a, you know, I, I grew up going to public school and then I went to private school because I wanted to get a Bible education. And everybody kind of grew up, you know, either homeschooled or in a private school. So everybody just knew everything about the Bible and I didn't. So I kind of just felt like an outsider, right? I didn't really quite get their world. And so for a while, I just kind of... Um, I, I had sort of friends who we knew each other, but man, I didn't really have any deep community. And so there was, um, 
I was struggling a lot with, uh, with anxiety in my heart and, and um, a ton of loneliness. I didn't feel like I was understood. And so I, there was one night um, in November, so a couple months into uh, my freshman year, and I felt like everybody had already made friends. And um, I remember even from the stage, they're like, yeah, yeah, you're gonna make your friends your first few weeks here. And um, here I am in November on a Friday night working on homework and my roommate's gone, he's hanging out with his friends, but I didn't really feel like I had anybody. And um, I don't know why, uh, but man, I, I had hit a really, really low point that night. Everything just kind of crumbled down. Um, the anxiety being uh, about five hours away from all of the friends and family that I ever knew. Um, and I remember uh, the pain being so difficult, the darkness being so heavy, that I remember a thought came across my mind that I had never thought about in my life. I remember thinking to myself, man, I'd rather be dead than feel the way that I feel right now. And I don't know if you've ever felt that before. Um, I don't know if you ever thought that before, but I, it was a scary thought because I had never, um, I, 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 I'd never thought it before. I knew I wasn't gonna do anything about it, but I, it was just terrifying. And so here I am, I kind of fall uh, <laughs> on my knees in my dorm room by myself. It's late at night and I just, uh, have you ever had those moments where you just kind of come before God and you're like, I don't even know what to say right now. I and um, I remember just kind of in the quietness underneath, you know, just kind of whispering and being like, God, I, I, I don't know what to do. I remember saying in prayer, I was like, God, you are all that I really have. Like, I, I, I don't feel like I have anybody here. God, you are all that I have and I don't know what to do right now. You, you've allowed me to get to this point where I've been so low. I thought that you wanted me at this school and I don't feel like I belong. I feel anxious. I feel depressed. I don't have anybody. College is supposed to be great. And honestly, it just kind of sucks. And I remember um, kind of in that moment, I believe the, the spirit of God had, had put on my heart and reminded me of, of sermons that I've heard in the past that, man, in your suffering, God is really near. And that was kind of a vague thought in my mind. I, you know, I hadn't, I had read scripture, but I didn't really see all of the, how, how God could be faithful to me in that time. And so I just remember thinking to myself, man, God, you have to be who you say you are. If you are not who you say you are, then I, this storm is gonna crush me and I need to try something else. And so I remember getting this Bible and flipping to the book of Psalms. That's all I knew to do. I didn't really know how to read the rest of the Bible. The Psalms seemed to be the easiest. And so I began to read scripture because I knew I was like, man, if I, if I wanna trust in the promises of God and the storm that I'm going through, then I need to be aware of God's promises, right? It, this is really my only hope. And so I began to read scripture. There'd be hours at a time when I would just kind of read through the Psalms until I believed that the anxiety, the feeling of anxiety would be overcome with, uh, with faith. And so I would just keep reading and reading and reading. Um, and God gave me promises. Promises like Psalm 34, 18. That the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Promises like Isaiah 41, 10. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Psalm 91, Psalm 34, again. Um, I cried to the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. His words are trustworthy. They're a rock in the storm. 
And I wish I could say that when I would read scripture, it was just kind of like a magic pill that would solve all my problems and it didn't. Guys, I still struggle with anxiety, but here's the difference. I have a rock that sustains me in the storm. Do you? Jesus says, try my promises. It's a firm foundation in your storm. So can you really trust the Bible, right? The evidence in the academy and the evidence of the personal testimony of so many people is yes. You can trust the Bible. It's trustworthy. But more than that, so is its author. God moved history to preserve every page we're holding in our hands so that we could know him personally, so we could face the storms of life with hope. Let me pray for us. Father, there are so many other foundations we could look to build our life on, the foundations of success, the foundations of the security we try to find in, our, in what people think of us, um, any number of things, God. But building our life on those things, it's like shifting sand. But Jesus, your word is a rock that we can build on. And so God, I pray that for those who are going through a storm in their life, they feel, God, that you are distant. There was a moment in time in their life when, man, they were raising their hands in worship and they were connecting with you, but now it feels like you've led them to a dry wasteland, to a desert. And Father, I pray that your word would be a rock in the storm, that they would see, God, that your promises are true, that they would take you up on your promise in Jeremiah 29, 13, that if you search for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. That's a promise you give us. And so God, I pray that we would be a people whose firm foundation is in you. That's what we want. 